Kevin, thanks so much for joining HSF Private Capital Training Sessions. You'll know that we host these sessions every Thursday within a month. We've had physical sessions for the past year. We had our first podcast last month. So this is the second in our podcast series to talk about private capital in Asia. Our last session, we talked about the impact of the pandemic on deal certainty, uh, how to manage transactions if your buyer is pulling out, how to uh, manage the acquisition if you are the buyer. And thank you very much to everyone for your feedback and engagement on that topic. Um, this time, we have had some feedback that it would be helpful to talk about particular businesses that are likely to be active in terms of acquisitions and portfolio company protection for fund managers in these circumstances. We thought we'd focus on technology companies in particular and those companies that are rich in intangible assets that really do need protection in these current circumstances. So we thought we would ask senior counsel Harry Evans to join us. Harry is a specialist in intellectual property and technology law to come and join us to talk about how do you go about protecting your IP assets? What sort of companies are likely to thrive in the current environment and where are the opportunities in this market? So thank you very much for Harry being here with us in this virtual room. Um, of course, I'm here, Nicola Yeomans, private capital partner here at HSF Singapore, together with Indranil Ghosh, who you'll all know, and Indranil and I um, have been running these um, training sessions for the past year or so. So Indranil, uh, myself and Harry are all here together to progress this conversation. So I'll, I'll hand over to Indranil just to provide a bit of an introduction uh, to this topic, uh, and then we'll go into um, some questions for you, Harry. On the way through. Thank you, thank you, Nick. So these are unprecedented and challenging times, aren't they? So if we think back to the last financial crisis, uh, it was pretty evident that the businesses that could actually weather the storm were uh, were IT related, technology related businesses, and uh, we expect technology again to continue to play a big role in the businesses that will be able to weather the storm this time round, especially when all of us are going online, whether you're uh, all uh, whether we are working from home on a large scale, businesses like Zoom and um, you know house party on the social side, whether we are binge watching Netflix at home, and whether the kids are doing schooling online, so the e-learning businesses. Even even when we are thinking about healthcare, uh, the front the front line that is actually facing this crisis, big data is playing a huge role in connecting us all together and actually letting uh, different countries use data from some other countries. So it's crucial to uh, in the current crisis in the current environment, and uh, I think will continue to thrive in the long run, which kind of brings our intellectual property protection to the forefront. And Harry, so would you agree with that assessment? Yeah, I think that's right, Indranil. I think that with the 
rise of the success of, of tech or digital businesses, we see growing reliance on the creation and protection and enforcement of IP rights. And that's because IP rights essential to protecting the technology, products and services, brands and know-how which give these tech companies their competitive advantage. So if you think about the archetypal examples of companies like Google and Apple and even Dyson, you will know or be aware of the importance of IP protection for those companies maintaining their global dominance. I think in the context of Asia, we're starting to see new Asian behemoths arising which have similar focus on IP protection, and that has not always been the case. But there is a a trickle-down effect where the value of IP to emerging tech companies is, is becoming increasingly important to them as businesses, but also to our PE investors in the context of acquiring and selling portfolio companies. Uh, thank you, Harry. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. So, in the context of uh, of a PE, so just talking particularly about PE, are there any kind of high level issues that we should be mindful of? Yeah, I think that there are specific issues which impact the PE M&A landscape, which perhaps are not so specific to broader industry M&A transactions. So, firstly. Um, Usually, PE firms do not have dedicated IP prosecution, maintenance and enforcement teams who are set up to advise on all aspects of a corporate transaction. Um, In contrast, when you work on a big pharmaceutical deal or um, tech deal, those clients may already have established in-house teams who can advise on the IP aspects. And so one issue for PE firms is that they do need Um, or or often require strong external IP advice in order to help them navigate the pitfalls of a corporate transaction. I think the second issue is that PE deals often involve business units or um, particular corporate entities being spun off from larger parent groups. And this type of arrangement can give rise to a whole host of complex separation issues from an IP perspective. And in this context, we find that we provide quite a lot of advice on how to manage issues around IP ownership and and licensing in order to effect a clean separation. Thirdly, I think that following completion of a purchase or sale of a portfolio company PE firms can often require um, external assistance on the ongoing management of an IP portfolio. So whether that is setting up a new brand for a company or managing a trademark or patent portfolio, that's usually something that they can't do or don't want to do in-house and is something that we can assist with as, as part of the sort of ongoing management of portfolio companies. And Harry, can I ask, in the context of evaluation of a business, do you often get asked about the strength of the IP protection in considering the valuation methodology and and sort of the intangible value that's placed on that business? (laughs) Yeah, thanks, uh, Nicola. This question does certainly crop up quite a lot. The short answer is that we wouldn't ordinarily try to 
place a dollar value on an entire IP portfolio? That's a very difficult question to answer and is usually tied up with a sort of more general analysis of the value of the business. At times, we are asked to advise on the dollar value of a specific trademark or a specific patent. And that is, again, a very complicated exercise and a bit of a dark art in terms of how you value it. You can sort of look at the value of the product that it protects, but you could also look at the value of the competitor products which it prevents from coming onto the market. And if we do need to go down that route, normally we would get specialised valuation experts to provide input. That's really helpful. And I think even more important in these times where the value of real assets are under review or not as clear. So the focus on the intangible assets becomes all the more important in these times. Yeah. One thing I was going to say, um, Nicola, is that I do think there's a distinction between trying to place a value on a portfolio versus assessing the health of an IP portfolio. And we certainly do provide a health check by looking for red flags. So for example, if an IP portfolio is particularly young in that, say, registrations have been filed very recently, it may suggest that the target has just been fattening up its IP portfolio in preparation for sale and that those IP rights may not be particularly strong in the sense that they've survived the test of time. We will also look for things like, is the IP portfolio diversified across different classes of IP? Does the portfolio provide uh, coverage across key markets and key products? Are there ongoing disputes? Often we find that clients or targets will refer to core proprietary technology as being a super valuable part of the business. But then when we look at what they mean by proprietary technology, they don't really have any substantive IP protection, which is another red flag. So all of these sorts of inquiries help us assess the health of a portfolio, even though we're not putting a dollar value on it. That's really helpful, and particularly in these in these times, Harry. Thank you, Harry. Um, so before uh, we examine the technical aspects of IP and how it affects deal making, maybe we take a step back and probably you can explain to us uh, just briefly what you mean by IP from, from a technical perspective. Thanks, Indranil. So IP refers to a class of various intangible legal rights which give the owner the ability to prevent third parties from using the assets which are protected by those legal rights. And there are a few different classes of IP, each of which has its own um, particular features. So patents um, are registered rights which last for a period of 20 years and are there to protect inventions. Trademarks are also a registered right but they can potentially subsist indefinitely if the owner continues to pay the renewal fees and they protect brands or badges of origin. Copyrights, in contrast, are not registered. Um, They arise automatically and they protect um, creative expression. So it could be literary works or musical works. Um, In our uh, practice, the most 
important issue is usually um, the ability for copyrights to protect uh, source code and object code in software, giving tech companies the ability to protect that software through the use of copyrights. Um, there are other more exotic classes of IP, such as uh, plant breeder rights or semiconductor topography rights, but patents, trademarks and copyrights are the usual classes that we come across. Yeah, that's very interesting. Thank you for that explanation. Maybe we focus on deals now. Uh, typically, you know, a deal from a corporate perspective, um, it will focus on two distinct phases. One is uh, diligence and the other one is documentation. Would you perhaps, Harry, please tell us how we would address IP issues by reference to these phases? Yeah, certainly. So uh, most of our clients will be familiar with some of the typical issues that crop up in relation to IP diligence. But in summary, um, they include as a first step reviewing the scope of the target's IP portfolio. So we will be assessing its geographical coverage, its product coverage, and also just the makeup of classes of IP. So is it patent heavy, trademark heavy, um, or neither? If an IP portfolio contains registered IP rights, we would ordinarily check to make sure those rights are registered. We would check their expiration dates and also other details around um, ownership details, whether they're the subject of a challenge or a revocation or opposition action, and or whether they might be the subject of an encumbrance which could cause issues in the sale process. We would also ordinarily review material IP agreements such as licenses in and licenses out, ask various due diligence questions around IP-specific liabilities such as ongoing uh, litigation, obligations to make um, significant milestone payments. And then finally, we would usually assess separation issues by asking whether the target has reliance on, say, a parent group or whether we need to deal with sort of carve-outs of particular assets which shouldn't be going with the target business. I think that the concept of diligence is, is generally well understood within the industry. The difficulty or the, the art of it is really about having a firm understanding of the target business and how value in that target business may be protected or driven by IP rights. And until you really understand that dynamic, it's difficult to focus the IP diligence process in the way it really needs to be focused. So just to talk about some some war stories or some, some interesting examples, um, I remember on one of my first PE deals, I was working for a company that was looking to acquire a breakfast cereal company. And as part of the DD process, we asked the vendor how they protected the confidential recipes used to make cereal. And it was funny because the vendor laughed at us and said that was a crazy question because anyone could make the cereal. Um, it just wasn't that complicated a process. And he explained that the true value in the entire business was in fact tied up with the branding and packaging 
of the products. So instead of looking at issues around confidential information and recipes, the focus of the diligence really was on trademarks and copyrights in the branding. In contrast, uh, as if to highlight some of the complexities with the diligence process, uh, sometimes later I worked on a, another separate food deal. But in that instance, it turned out that some of the new food products that were being sold had actually been patented because it was a, a sort of synthetic or artificial food product which had been invented, which had particular nutritional advantages. And so instead of focusing on, say, confidential recipe or on branding issues, the focus of the um, diligence was very much on the, the validity and scope of the patent portfolio, which protected the uh, food products. And then finally, just as another example, we recently worked on a healthcare transaction where you would think that the IP portfolio would be of central importance, but it actually turned out that of more importance were the material commercial agreements around things like distribution and marketing rather than licensing arrangements around the target's IP. And I guess all of these examples just go to show that understanding what drives a business and understanding where the value is is absolutely critical for targeting the IP diligence process. And I would say that it's no different in the case of acquiring or divesting technology companies which rely heavily on proprietary software. This software could be protected in numerous different ways through copyrights, confidential information, or even patents. And understanding the process by which the software has been developed and the process by which it has been protected is absolutely crucial in identifying the IP issues and advising on how strong the company's IP position is. So we've talked a bit about diligence. Now I'd like to touch briefly on the second phase of the deal, the preparation of uh, legal documentation. You know, the share purchase agreement, the asset purchase agreement, or the business sale agreement. So what kind of issues, Harry, should we look out for uh, from an IP perspective relating to these documents? Yeah, thanks, um, Indranil. So usually, as an IP lawyer, we would break down the legal documentation into two categories. First of all, we have the key transaction documents, such as share purchase agreements and asset purchase agreements, which govern the sale mechanics. And in the context of these documents, we would really be trying to address um, issues such as conditions precedent, um, asset transfer mechanics, uh, transfer and separation issues, um, and then other items such as pre-completion and post-completion obligations of the parties. Um, from a risk perspective, um, we'd also use the key transaction documents to address um, the allocation of liabilities, um, for example, by including appropriate warranties and indemnities. The second class of documents is really the ancillary agreements and these may comprise things like brand licenses or technology licenses. And the main purpose of the ancillary agreements 
is to affect a smooth transition of the target business from the vendor to the purchaser by setting out the terms on which the business will be operated post-completion. So, for example, um, a brand licence might give the target business a transitional period in which to use the vendor's brand while it um, rebrands itself to the purchaser's brand or to a new brand altogether. I think um, we're seeing some of these ancillary agreements and even some of the main provisions in the key transaction documents, such as warranties, becoming somewhat standardised within the industry. That's interesting. So I'm just wondering if um, a lot of these documents are becoming more and more standardised, what, what value then there is in us undertaking extensive due diligence on IP issues? <laughs> I think I think that's a great uh, question, Indranil, which really perhaps keeps some uh, IP lawyers awake at night because um, there does seem to be a temptation these days to try to deal with IP issues via the insertion of fairly aggressive indemnities or warranties, which I guess some parties think are an avenue for curtailing more extensive diligence. And this approach may be a cost-effective approach in certain circumstances, particularly where the IP assets of a target business are not particularly valuable or are not seen as being a real uh, value generator for the business. However, in circumstances where IP is particularly valuable, especially in the context of technology deals, uh, pharmaceutical and healthcare deals, consumer goods deals and the like, we do think the cost of the IP diligence is justified because these are the sorts of transactions which will throw up um, somewhat unique IP issues that need to be dealt with via bespoke drafting and it's not possible always to simply put in place um, vanilla or standardised drafting in the key transaction documents to address these sorts of issues. So, for example, um, we've worked on a matter before where the target was party to some um, high-profile and high-value IP litigation. And one of the key issues was trying to put in place a mechanism for transferring that litigation to the PE acquirer and also putting in place a mechanism to deal with liabilities that arose in connection with that litigation and whether they should be borne by the vendor who'd been conducting the litigation for a number of years or by the purchaser who would be responsible for um, uh, progressing the litigation post completion. Perhaps an even bigger issue, which I um, should have mentioned at the start, is that IP diligence is not always just about uh, identifying issues and then addressing them in the transaction documents. Um, there is also situations where the identification of an IP issue can have an impact on the valuation of the business. 
and even an impact on a purchaser's decision on whether or not to proceed with the business. So in an extreme case, if diligence throws up material issues which can't be rectified, then it may be that a deal collapses or at least a um, re-evaluation of the purchase price is made. Look, that, that's been a really great discussion and um, I think really helpful for those listening in. And, and look, if anybody listening uh, has any questions, please reach out to us and we'd love to hear any feedback that you have on these issues from the perspective of your own portfolio companies. We'll be back in touch in a a few weeks' time with our next session of HSF Thursday Private Equity Training. Um, If you have any requests of things that you'd like us to talk about, we'd love to hear them. We're probably uh, likely to focus on uh, restructuring transactions, uh, debt-to-equity swaps and other debt-focused transactional structures for the next session that we have, but definitely let us know if there are other topics that you feel would be really helpful to you. Okay, everyone, thank you very much for joining. Thank you to Harry and Indra Neil. Uh, look forward to being in touch. Stay safe.